This is Digital Health Today, episode 45. It would be my dream to be able to shave six months to a year off of training. You know, what we're asking of our residents and fellows is, is really disproportionate to any other sort of profession in terms of the time involved and the debt accrual and just uh, the sheer amount of work. So anything you can do to make it more efficient would be a real game changer. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. This episode is brought to you by Medible, the app and analytics company for healthcare. Medible invites you to try its Axon solution. Axon makes clinical research easy with its clicks, not code technology. Create your first clinical trial app in just a few minutes. Go to www.medible.com to get a demo today. That's www.medible.com. Welcome back. This is Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders working to make the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 45. In this episode, we're talking to another game developer turned healthcare professional. You may remember back on episode 8, we spoke with nurse and master gamer Anna Sort. She's now running a company based in Barcelona that's helping healthcare companies develop fun and effective tools to engage users. If you haven't done it yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode She gives some insights and techniques to achieve what she calls epic wins. You can grab that on digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash eight. And today we're speaking with a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, in fact. You may have heard me mention him on episode 43 with Professor Stefano Bini. He's the professor of clinical orthopedics at UCSF. In that episode, we were talking about digital health tools being developed specifically for orthopedics. And our guest today is the founder of one of the companies that is doing exactly that. Our guest is Dr. Justin Barad. He's the founder and CEO of OssoVR, that's O-S-S-O-V-R, as in virtual reality. He's taken his skill at gaming and game development and applied it to solve a real problem in medical education. In fact, it's not just for medical education. It really has broad applications from the military to continuing education and product training and much more. I know you'll enjoy this conversation, but I also wanted to make sure that you can see what Justin and his team have produced. So head over to the website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 45 and check out a few of the videos that I've loaded there. You can also find all the links to the things we discussed on this episode. And of course, while you're there, you can also subscribe to the podcast. Go ahead and do that to make sure you get this podcast delivered automatically to your phone each week. And if you haven't done so yet, please go online and leave a review of this podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us reach a larger audience through the iTunes platform. I just want to give a shout out to Rick Buter, Stefano Bini, Patty Kyler, Tyler Pugsley, Matthew Larson, all of you who have left five-star reviews and comments. If you leave a five-star review and a comment, I'll be able to see your name and give you a shout out here on the podcast. I appreciate the five-star ratings as well. I just can't see your names or handles when you do that if you don't leave a comment. So I'm not able to thank you by name, but you still receive my appreciation, whomever you are, wherever you are. Now, enough with the introduction. Let's tune into the conversation with Dr. Justin Barad. Justin, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's really an honor and a pleasure to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Justin, you and I met over a year ago at some conferences in California. We met at, I know it was Health 2.0 in Santa Clara and the body computing conference that Leslie Saxon has down in LA. And I also saw you on stage giving a demo at the Digital Health Summit at the CES in Las Vegas earlier this year. Really impressive demo to a packed audience. You did a really great job with that. Every time I talk with you, I get more excited about what you're working on. Can you give the listeners a little bit of background into your evolution as a professional? And then I want to jump into some of the things that you're working on right now with also VR. 
Yeah, sure thing. It really starts all the way back in high school when I originally wanted to get into game development. Uh, I've been coding since eighth grade. I have a game credit with Activision and some illness in the family got me really interested in maybe how do I use these skills and technology and software to help people, to apply them to medical problems. So uh, I studied bioengineering in college and to really get a better understanding of the problems and really sort of a firsthand perspective, uh, my mentor, who is a gastroenterologist, Henry Lin, suggested that I go to medical school and become a physician. So it was, it was a pretty dramatic move, but I really believed in this. So I went to medical school at UCLA and I stayed there to do my orthopedic surgery training. And then I did a fellowship in pediatric orthopedics. And it was actually my training itself that turned out to be the tremendous problem that I observed. Tell me about that. What do you mean? What problem did you discover in your training? So there's this phenomenon called the training gap where the number and complexity of the procedures we need to learn is ever increasing, yet the time we have to learn them is decreasing. So really something has to give at some point, and it's been a bit of a frog in slowly boiling water situation where there, there really hasn't been any solution for this problem. And you're seeing it reflected in the case logs of graduating residents. When you look at these mapped out, with critical procedures that residents need to learn, they're actually, the vast majority of them, they've, they've never done. So the, the mode of these, this graph is, is zero, which is quite shocking. It's also reflected in the fact that over 90% of residents now go on to extra years of subspecialty training and fellowships. So as if the five to seven years of surgical training weren't enough, they're doing extra training. And what this really means is that the sort of the center and the hub of surgical training has, has kind of moved out of residency. And many procedures, as surgeons are in practice, they're performing for the first time. And they're practicing it on patients, really. And those first few patients don't do too well. And their complication rate can be up to 300% higher than normal, which is from data about the learning curve for anterior total hip replacements, which is a moderately complex procedure. Let me Let me stop you there for a second. You mentioned before that there was a study that actually looked at how many surgeries surgeons were expected to know how to do and then how many instances they'd actually performed them. Can you reference that study and fill the listeners in about that result in terms of the fact that they'd only done one or two or zero of the particular types of surgeries they were expected to know? Yeah, this, this, this study is, is, is very fascinating and it was actually from 2009. So this was eight years ago and the problem was already quite bad then. So it's only worse now. And it's a study published in the Annals of Surgery the leading program directors in the country for general surgery residencies got together and they're like, what, what is the bare minimum that a surgeon needs to know when they graduate? What are the critical procedures that they need to know for independent practice? And they identified 121 procedures that they felt that everybody should be sort of facile with. And then, you know, we report all of our cases in the ACGME case log system so you can easily track what people have done by the time that they graduate. So they looked at this data for all the graduating residents of that year. And uh, like I mentioned before, the actually the mode of, of this graph, the, the most frequently appearing number was zero. So the vast majority of these procedures, no one had ever done in the country. And many of them, they'd only done once or twice. So, you know, you're looking at a serious problem where what are deemed critical procedures, many people are doing for the first time in independent practice with really minimal supervision. And I think in your area of medicine, in orthopedics, the problem is even more acute in that uh, I know you mentioned once before that knowing how to do a procedure is one thing, but doing it with the particular device or kit that you're going to be using is a whole nother matter. Yeah, the, the technologies we're using are getting uh, extremely complicated. 
these powerful technologies that uh, are very enabling and uh, can improve outcomes and efficiencies have a longer learning curve counterintuitively. So they're more powerful technologies, but they're harder to learn. So these are things like robotics, navigation systems, patient-specific implants, new approaches like minimally invasive approaches for spine uh, or joint replacement. So uh, these are really great techniques and technologies, but they're hard to learn. And on average, you're looking at about 50 to 100 patients before you reach proficiency. So that doesn't even mean you're you're an expert at the surgery, but you're just doing it safely. So with anterior total hip arthroplasty, the revision rate is actually 6% for your first 20 or so cases, uh, which means 6% of your patients need a second surgery. And that rate is typically 1% to 2% for a proficient surgeon. So you're subjecting a huge number of patients to unnecessary risk, and they probably don't know that they're undergoing that risk when they're getting the surgery with you. Now, it would seem to me that the surgeon's proficiency would have some impact on outcomes. I know that sounds like an obvious statement, but I mean, in, in actual practice, can you give me any input on how that's been measured or tracked? Obviously, this is a very sensitive subject for for surgeons, um, a, a bit taboo, and it's actually been looked at very little. So, uh, you know, the first study I think that was ever published that actually tied surgical skill to patient outcomes was in 2013, and I, I don't really think there's been any since, uh, but I haven't checked uh, recently. But intuitively, people would just assume that a more skilled surgeon technically would have better results, and uh, it's true. Uh, this study proved it. And patients who had a technically better surgeon, these surgeons were uh, objectively graded by blinded observers who reviewed videos of the surgeries. Those patients had shorter hospital stays, lower infection rates, um, and, and many other improved outcomes, so shorter OR times. So, you know, in an outcomes-based world where we really care about the value of the care delivered, surgical skill is now uh, a really important factor that is still not taken into account um, when you're you know, allocating these resources. And also there's this information gap where patients are selecting their physician or their surgeon based on their availability and their affability. And the low, least important thing is their ability. And there's really no ability for patients to access this information. And, you know, people would really want to know that they are going to a technically skilled surgeon, but they're basically just seeing people by reputation. And I've definitely seen a disconnect with many famous surgeons not being very, very skilled technically or, you know, very unfamous surgeons who are incredible. Actually, that, that's a great point because I was thinking about your perspective as a resident. And one of the things that residents get to do is you get to travel through a lot of people's operating rooms, right? And and when you actually are fully qualified and you're seeing your own patients, you don't get to necessarily have the opportunity to go and stand in other people's operating rooms. And I know for laparoscopic surgery, which is where I spend a good portion of my time as a sales rep and product manager, marketing manager, so forth, there were various things that, that people were able to do to set up lap skills courses and laparoscopic trainers. What sorts of things are being done in orthopedic surgery to get you prepared to do these procedures? There's a little bit of standardized skill training. Mainly, there's a, a group called the AO Foundation, which is an extremely large surgical educational foundation that trains surgeons around the world. Almost all residents will go to an AO basics course to learn some basics of fracture fixation, but you know, typically that's that's just a few days. And then, you know, courses are offered mainly by medical device companies where you get to practice uh, certain basic surgical skills and also the use of uh, device systems and surgical approaches. But once again, these are very sort of singular training events, maybe one, one to three days max. And 
this is a uh, you know surgery is something that takes years to master so uh, a few days uh, moves the needle a little bit uh, but it's it's not comprehensive uh, currently Th- there are simulators that exist uh, that allow you to practice certain types of orthopedic procedures typically these are arthroscopic procedures so uh, that would be like a knee or hip or shoulder scope but in terms of really the the non-arthroscopic procedures or open procedures there, there's there's been nothing up until up until now and has the reduction in training hours been a factor in this as well? Because I know when, when there was first talk in the U.S. and across Europe about reducing the amount of time that people were allowed to stay on call or in the hospital, and there were a lot of fully qualified surgeons who said, this is crazy. We can never predict when that emergency appendectomy is going to come in and how else am I going to train that group of people to do that uh, unless they actually have exposure to that, that actual patient. Has that had an impact on the ability to learn this massive volume of of cases and surgical procedures that people are expected to know? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, there are estimates that go as high as that we've lost a year of residency training time due to work hour restrictions. But obviously, they're not a bad thing, right? I mean, the hours people were working and still are working is is pretty unreal. And there there are many other factors. Like I said before, you know, if if you're just learning like 20 different procedures, you're going to spend a lot more time on those procedures. But if you're learning hundreds of different procedures, you're going to be spread uh, much more thin. And another time factor is electronic medical record system. So some studies show that 40% of a physician's time now is spent doing documentation and administrative tasks on electronic medical record systems. And then this is something that's a bit hard to quantify, but I definitely feel it uh, in practice and during my training is that there's a cultural shift in a much larger awareness of what a resident is, what their role is, and and, uh, kind of an aversion to, to having them do anything on you, which is which is very understandable. So, you know, often we would be called out before a case and be, you know, specifically requested that, you know, this resident not not touch the patient or do anything. Um, and so what happens is you, you take a back seat and you're just basically observing for, uh, I think, a much larger proportion of cases uh, than maybe a decade or two ago where residents were typically operating under supervision. And, you know, if you look at something called the learning pyramid, which describes different modalities of learning, observation is is the lowest on the totem pole with about 20% retention. And I've never ceased to be amazed as to how inefficient a form of learning it is. I'll, I'll show someone a skill like drilling through bone or something like maybe two or three times and tell them to watch carefully and then have them go and not even close to what I had demonstrated to them. So that's a really big issue. And, you know, it's kind of um, people are kicking the can down the road because what's happening is people are saying, I don't want that resident to practice on me. So eventually that resident's going to be a full-blown attending physician and he's going to be practicing on that same person who didn't want them to. So you're really, it's sort of like a not in my backyard situation. Um, and at some point something has to give. So at what point did you realize that there's a better way to do this? I mean, you you had experience in gaming, you were an avid gamer, you were a developer, you went to school for medicine, you became an orthopedic resident. At what point did you realize that there was uh, going to be a better way and a better technology that would enable a better solution here for, for people being trained? Well, definitely uh, the first few times after I was asked to kind of like scrub out and, and Google the procedure we were doing to find uh, the instruction manual for the surgery, uh, I think I knew that the problem had exceeded some sort of threshold of where this is not how it's supposed to be. Wait a minute. I just want to pause there. So uh, was that an exaggeration? Are you using hyperbole here or is that a literal uh, instance that happened to you? 
I, I wish I was exaggerating, Dan. It is it's just unreal. I cannot emphasize strongly enough how bad of a problem this is. So you were... <laughs> I, I'm just trying to picture this. So you're standing there, you're scrubbed in next to the attending surgeon, and somewhere along the lines there's some confusion, and you're asked to scrub out and Google the instruction manual for the kit you're using. Is that right? You got it. Wow. And what what'd you find? I mean, was there, were the results there on Google? Did you have to go to page 10 of the Google results? I mean, you, you know, I, I mean, Google's amazing. Sometimes it's there. <laughs> I, there. There's been some Wikipedia used too, which is also frightening. And was that, uh, was that the, I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's cartoons about that, right? About, you know, nurse, please doctor, please Google this or the other. So was that the moment that you started to think, Okay, th- this this has got to change. We th- this we should not be standing here with the patient open and exposed under general anesthesia, and you know, googling for the uh, instruction manuals for the IKEA piece of furniture. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I, I I think that was a particularly impactful moment, and wow. uh, it's uh, it shouldn't be that way, and and it 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 didn't work well, right? Like you know, there were still problem, you know, some minor problems with the procedure that we were doing uh, because of this, and. I don't think anyone even thought that that procedure would be a problem because it was a, a relatively simple surgery, but we were using a device no one had ever used before. And we figured it would just be a lot like the different kind of brand we were all used to. And it wasn't. Uh, so that that really opened my eyes. And Justin, you don't think you're alone in that, I take it, right? I mean, you, that was not just you're the only person in the universe that's experienced that. That you, Do you think another with other residents that you've worked with that that's a common experience that people have had that sometime in their career? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think there's anyone I've ever talked to about this who isn't like, oh, I, I don't have that problem. This is uh, universal. So um, it's really when I give talks, people are, are really happy that someone is finally doing something about this. So what did you do then when you had this sort of penny drop and think there's a better way of doing it and you thought about all your developer experience? Had you already been looking at VR in other areas in terms of gaming or other aspects of it and thought to apply it to surgical training? Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I was still very involved in, in the world of gaming and I just, you know, was was very into VR just on a completely separate thread. I, I, I didn't think that I would be you know, starting a VR company. And I had the Oculus DK1, which is the first headset available. And you could actually, there's this discontinued motion tracking controller that you could hack together with the headset so you could interact with these virtual worlds with your hands. And the second I did that, I just realized that, you know, this virtual reality renaissance had crossed some threshold where you can actually do and learn technical skills. I was I was like picking up a chair in virtual reality, but I was like, this this could be an implant or some anatomy or something. I just I just knew it. And you know, this this wasn't a subtle problem that I had to find. It was something that I was living and breathing every day. And I'm like, the world needs this. And you know, really at first I was like, I can't wait for someone to do something about it. And um there's this uh you know, I was involved in the Greek community in college and I took this like leadership course and there was really cheesy exercise that time and time again, I've been surprised as to how I think back on this exercise called the tap of leadership, where they ask everyone in the room to kind of uh, kneel down, close your eyes and look down and it only stand up when you feel a tap on your shoulder. And so I was just kind of sitting there and I felt a tap and I stood up um, and they went over the exercise and they're like, well, who do like, who do you think? was the first person to get up and you know we all assumed that they had tapped somebody but really they just let us sit there forever and someone finally realized that you had to tap yourself to get the ball rolling 
So I kind of thought back on that and I'm like, I, you know, I had this gaming background and I had a deep understanding of the problem. I'm like, well, maybe I could give it a shot. <laughs> That's a great experience. I've never heard a story like that in terms of, uh, you know, that Greek experience and tapping yourself to get the, the, the thing started. But yeah, absolutely. It is a matter of, you know, you look around and you say, why isn't anybody doing this? And then you realize, oh, actually, I think I can do this. <laughs> That's how this podcast got started, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was listening to a lot of podcasts and couldn't find, I thought it was a problem with Apple search algorithms. I couldn't find anything about digital health and very little about health techs. And I thought, well, geez, after a few weeks of complaining about it, wondering who was going to do it, I thought, well, actually, I guess I can. <laughs> so here we are. So what was the first thing you did? I mean, and, and t- tell me what year that was and what you did then to actually get started. Well, you know, um, I had a fair bit of, of learning to do. Gaming technology had changed quite a bit since I was uh, much more heavily involved in it. So I, I taught myself how to use Unity and then VR development. And I kind of, uh, I just worked on kind of my own prototype and version of it and quickly realized that I, I could create like a sort of proof of concept of what this looked like. But, you know, I was going to need... Uh, some help to really (laughs) take it forward and and, and make it look like something that wasn't horribly ugly. And so I actually, you know, I was pretty involved in the VR community, uh, both uh, in reality and online. And uh, I had met someone who just had quit electronic arts to pursue serious virtual reality applications. And we kind of, I mean, it was almost like responding to a personal ad. And we kind of had a few phone calls, got to know each other. And we've been co-founders and best friends ever since. And so uh, we kind of joined forces, created really a, the first prototype that was submitted to the GPU Tech Conference that was in April 2016. And it won an innovation award at the early company summit. And it really, it just kind of snowballed from there. There was a lot of interest after that. And we just kept getting asked to do a little bit more, a little bit more. And you know, eventually we're here today. So who's the target client that you're going after with the company you formed also VR? Well, like I said before, simulators are not new in medicine, but I had noticed that I had really never seen anyone using them, and they just didn't seem like the, I guess, the the business of simulation was booming, at least in the surgical space. I think they, they'd been doing pretty well uh, in uh, anesthesiology. So, you know, when I when I first started thinking about this problem, I'm like, why, why had simulator companies not really taken off in the past? And so the, there, there were two factors that really stood out to me. One was this sort of like, a capital business model where they're, they're selling huge pieces of equipment that are $200,000 and they would break or the hardware would be obsolete in just a few months because things are moving so much faster. So that was very unattractive to people and kind of limited the adoption. Another thing is that they, they're not mobile. They're, they're typically stationary. So as a surgeon myself, eating lunch during the day is like a huge luxury. Usually I just have a peanut butter packet on the elevator even going to the bathroom was sometimes hard to find time for. So, you know, people aren't going to go across the street to the simulation lab to, you know, practice at some point. So uh, there was that. And then finally, I really, to this day, I, I don't think there's a good business case for simulators for hospitals until really outcomes-based payment becomes more of a thing. If you spend like $4 million on a simulator lab, in terms of your revenue, like it's not really going to move the needle. It's just it's kind of like a marketing thing or the right thing to do. And there's just a, an incentive-based kind of science behind that where it's, it's just not going to drive the sales and the growth of that business. But as an orthopedic surgeon, I'm constantly attending these courses, these training courses that were paid for by device companies. And, you know, they're paying millions and millions, if not billions of dollars on these things around the world. Because if someone 
doesn't know how to use your device and use it safely, they're not going to use it and you're not going to get paid for it. So these courses, like I said, are very singular events. And so it's it's a very little bit of training. And I saw that it wasn't working very well. Like once people got in the field, they still had a lot of problems with the devices and it really limited the adoption of these devices. So after a $200,000, $300,000 course, you're looking at someone like a 30% of those surgeons continuing to use that device, which would seem very low to me. And there's some data to support that with simulation or more training, you can get that number up, maybe even to 90%. So to me, I thought that creating these training experiences for medical device companies was a way to sort of create this value generation effect where this would create a lot of value for our customer-based medical device companies, but also get to our users because they would have access to a large number of surgeons uh, all around the world because these companies are global. And an important thing to us is really democratizing access to this training, to really opening this up to the world. So our customers are mainly medical device manufacturers, but our users are surgeons, sales reps, and OR staff. And the sales rep issue is very interesting. And I think you probably have some deep understanding of this. It's it's kind of a not a, quote, sexy issue, but uh, sales reps are, are pretty critical, at least in the U.S. They're, they're in every single procedure that I've ever been in, and training them is, is not trivial. It takes quite a while. It can be six to 12 months. You can spend $100,000 to $200,000 on training a sales rep, and there are 90,000 medical device sales reps in the U.S., so this is a huge number, and the turnover is unreal. A lot of them just can't make it. It's very hard to do. And so many quit uh, or get fired uh, because they just don't have the chops to do it. And the training programs for these reps are not very sophisticated. So it's actually a a pretty large uh, healthcare burden in terms of uh, healthcare dollars spent on rep training. We'll dive back into our discussion in just a moment, but I wanted to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Medible, the app and analytics company for healthcare. You may have heard my interview with Medible CEO Dr. Michelle Longmire in episode 29. Medible is a fast-growing company that was just named by the San Francisco Chronicle as a startup to watch. There's a lot of buzz about this company because Medible combines deep healthcare knowledge with cutting-edge Silicon Valley technology. Its solutions are disrupting the $30 billion clinical trial outsourcing market. $30 billion? That's a market ready for disruption. It's no secret that clinical trials continue to grow more complex, and patient recruitment and retention are a major challenge to sponsors. Today's protocols are more demanding than ever, and frequent travel to clinical sites often discourages patients from long-term participation in studies. Did you know that 25% of patients drop out before study completion? In many studies, 50% or more visits could be relocated to a patient's home. For decades, the clinical trials industry has been saddled by legacy technology and workflow inefficiencies. Medible puts patients first and uses mobile tools to bring anywhere, anytime technology to improve recruiting and patient retention. Medible solutions include functionality that replaces eSource, eConsent, and EDC data entry into a study. And they can integrate with EMR, IRT, wearables, and other devices. Solutions that are powered by Medible are HIPAA compliant, auditable, and interoperable right out of the box. The Medible platform serves as the hub for the entire patient record with data spanning all healthcare systems. If you're interested in building clinical apps that patients love and that bridge the gap between the clinic to the app store, check out Medible's Axon. It's easy, it's HIPAA compliant, and it's supported by a robust platform. Give it a try and create your first clinical trial app in just a few minutes. It's true. Go to www.medible.com to schedule a demo. Now let's jump back to the conversation. 
I've spent years and continue to work with companies that are developing training tools and f- trying to find better ways to train their sales reps so that the sales reps can do a better job training their users, whether they're nurses or PTs or surgeons or whatever. It was a big leap when we actually went away from opening up a laptop and trying to show a video or standing at the script sync with a brochure and trying to talk people through a product to then being able to have an iPad or an iPhone. But what you're talking about and what you're doing is so much further ahead because if I were to stand with a surgeon and you know hold a camera head and show him how to use the various features on the camera head itself, or if a sales rep was to talk about a mesh or a particular product or a glue or whatever it is that they're using or a, a trauma kit, then it's a whole different experience than if you say, hey, come over to me 15 minutes before the case and I'm going to put this on you and you'll be able to be in an environment where you're actually using this and you can not only do what you know we would do a lot in arthroscopic or laparoscopic surgery when you're actually talking about the training inside the patient's anatomy but you can also have exposure to everything else that's happening inside the operating room right i mean you can see what's laid out on the table you can see how things have to come together before you actually ever touch the patient with the product how did you go about engaging some of those target medical device companies and what was their response when you began talking to them I think it's it has been pretty fascinating. It was very confirmatory and validating. Like, uh, you know, when I bring up the problem, like nobody has been like, oh, no, this isn't a problem for us. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, this is a really, really big issue that we need to do something about. So everybody's very aware of this kind of the training gap and this course to case gap. What I didn't mention before is that the turnaround time between a medical device sort of sponsored cadaver course and actual inpatient use is commonly uh, four to six months. I mean, so if, if you just think about that, it's like, you know, you're studying for a test once and then taking that test six months later, um, except instead of a test, it's an innocent human being that's entrusting you with their care. So uh, it, it's just pretty wacky and it's it's only getting worse. So so that, that was the initial response. And, you know, I, I'll be honest, like very early on, there was a little bit of like skepticism, like, does this work? Do we really need this? And the conversation quickly changed. I think uh, there's been a bit of a shift in the market and in very short period of time where people are now reaching out to us a bit, being like, we need your VR solution for this training gap, this course to case gap to boost patient outcomes and adoption rates. Yeah, I can understand why there's some skepticism around new technologies when they come out initially. But I, you know, one of the things that we've been talking around for decades is a group of surgeons, a generation of surgeons, you're in that group that grew up on video games. And, you know, the the conversation for the past 20 years has been around the fact that the expectation is that people who come from that generation will have better hand-eye coordination and better surgical skills because they've been working in that sort of gaming world. So it would make sense to me that applying that sort of gaming technology to actually do the training, not just, you know, get people better hand-eye coordination, but actually to give them the exposure to the actual product, it just seems like a no-brainer. So I'm, I'm really pleased that people are beginning to accept it more. And I think you're working with a variety of the top companies right now. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're actually, as we speak, uh, our product is being featured at the Oculus Connect uh, conference. So it's, it's one of the very few non-gaming uh, kind of technology being featured there. So our entire company comes from the world of professional gaming. People are coming from Zynga, Nintendo, Activision, Electronic Arts, Microsoft, uh, Unity. So we we all have uh, you know professional top tier gaming backgrounds. So we're we're kind of uh, 
sort of reorient reorienting that superpower and you know we say we're gaming for good or tech for good and uh we're, we're very mission driven and it's fun to apply these skills to to really help people and uh you know make providers more skilled just to be clear this is not an orthopedic only problem right this is a pan-surgical and with this sort of technology you can i mean you might be starting in orthopedics but i imagine you have plans to branch out into other areas is that right yeah, that's that's exactly true. I think any sort of surgical or interventional area that involves complex new technologies, robotics is an easy example, very notoriously long learning curves with uh, these surgical robots. And then um, uh, also the, the new field of structural heart, um, which is an interventional field, is actually so complex is uh, this new category of devices requires an entire additional year of training. So to do a procedure like TAVR, which is a transcatheter aortic valve replacement, you have to do an extra year on top of your already six to seven years of interventional cardiology training. I can imagine as these technologies get more and more advanced and more and more accepted that there's just going to be a shortening of, of so many training cycles. And hopefully that will help address some of the, the world shortage that we have in qualified surgeons. That's really, uh, it would be my dream to be able to shave six months to a year off of training. You know, what we're asking of our residents and fellows is, is really disproportionate to any other sort of profession in terms of the time involved and the debt accrual and just the, the sheer amount of work. So anything you can do to make it more efficient would be a real game changer. So let's let's talk about the data that your system can create now. So uh, obviously, when someone's doing a procedure with a patient or they're doing it on a, uh, you know, in a, in a skills lab, there are certain things that you can measure for. But what sorts of things can you measure that's very different inside a VR environment? And what sort of things can you simulate that would be helpful in, in, in shortening that, that training curve? Well, um, you know, the, the data is really what is uh, pretty transformative about a lot of this technology. The, the training experience is, is incredible and super helpful, but the data from that experience can really change how patients do. And what I mean with that is that when someone attends a training course or even a training program, you know what they did but you don't know what they're going to do. So a surgeon at a course, you know, they went through everything, but at, when they leave, it's a black box. They could be the greatest surgeon in the world, or they could be a total dud. And, you know, right now, you know, maybe it doesn't matter to people if duds are out there, they're still going to use a device and that company's going to get paid. But as we shift to outcomes-based payments, you know, a device company is going to be paid less if people are bringing down sort of the average of how patients do. So it's very important to them that they sort of control who is doing the surgery and that people who are highly proficient in the use of device are the only ones that are allowed to use it to keep their numbers up. But also, you know, in the past, this had has led to big issues for companies and patients where people were insufficiently trained in certain device systems, causing massively poor outcomes for patients and people were blaming a device. And when the company looked into it, it was just that they were using it inappropriately. And once they instituted a mandatory training program, the problem was solved completely. So it's actually a, it's a pretty big uh, sort of patient population issue, this training and being able to track people's proficiencies. And, you know, like I said before, surgical skill is directly tied to how a patient does which you know seems very intuitive but nobody thinks or talks about this and on some level you know maybe not the the pure raw surgical skill data but you know patients have a right to know 
what has a surgeon been trained in? What are they proficient in? What is safe for them to do? Because right now, as you you know, you're not really able to get that information. And uh, you know, even if you ask a surgeon, and even if you ask me, you know, someone be like, "How many times have you done this procedure?" I'll be like, "Oh, hundreds." But what they really should be asking should be, "How many times have you done this approach or use this specific device?" And people probably aren't asking that question, so it's very easy to get around this. So I think having access for patients, for them to empower them to make the right decisions for themselves and their family uh, is also an important aspect, which you can only get from this data because you can't in any sort of scalable way really track someone's surgical performance. And once again, you know, in a four to six month gap, even if someone is incredibly skilled at the end of a device course, there's going to be massive amounts of attrition. So you want a way to check in periodically over that four to six month gap and make sure that someone is still proficient before they get in front of that patient. And really simulation is, is one of the only ways to do that. There are other ways, but they're, they're very labor intensive, uh, you know, would require flying out like a skilled observer who can surgically grade someone or recording a video. And their entire company is dedicated to just like scoring surgical videos. It's, it's very hard to do. Um, and simulators can actually automate this process and make it very easy to get large amounts of technical kind of skill data. I like the three A's that you mentioned earlier, the availability, the affability, and the actual ability of the surgeon. It would seem that surgeons would be for some sort of rating system, because right now there's a big problem with people getting, you know, choosing their doctors off of Yelp reviews and, you know, things like that. And it can be really distorting when you have a disgruntled patient that's, you know, upset because they can't get their opioids uh, prescribed and they're making bad reviews or comments about the doctor versus actually being able to look at the doctor's ability. And potentially, as I spoke about with uh, Dr. Stefano Bini from UCSF, actually, we were talking about you in our uh, podcast. Being able to link that ability with those outcomes, if you can have sensors tracking the patients, you can actually find more data to support the patient-reported outcomes data that you're actually uh, receiving back. So it can become a really powerful story as you track the, the surgeon's ability, the patient's actual objective performance, as well as their subjective reviews on, on how they're doing post-surgery. So exciting times. You're actually going to be out there uh, with Dr. Beanie at his uh, Doc SF conference. Is that right? That's correct. I and our company will be there uh, speaking and also uh, demoing our technology. Excellent. Well, I encourage everyone to get out there and watch that. It is uh, you, you have a fascinating product, and I wish you a lot of success. Uh, so, Justin, you've been developing this over the past year. You've been having conversations with various uh, medical device companies and actually rolling this out and showing it to various people. How do you know that it actually works? We get this question a lot, does this actually work? And so we wanted to answer that ourselves. And so we did a, a randomized blinded trial at UCLA. This hasn't been published or presented yet, but we were actually a little bit surprised at the results. And we took two groups of uh, medical students. One group was trained with OSO VR, and the other group was trained with traditional means. And then at the end of the training, they actually performed sort of a simulated session on sawbones, which is the styrofoam bone model, which is a common way to practice procedures in orthopedics. And the VR trained group doubled the surgical performance scores of the non-VR group, which is a really is not a number you usually see in, in these studies. It, it was just a really disproportionate impact. And so what was also really interesting from that study is that some of the people in the group didn't even know it was working. Uh, there, was, there was one girl that really stood out to me who she came up to me after her training and said that she didn't feel like it was very effective or that it worked for her. And then she had the single best time of the day. 
So there, there's something very deep and unconscious about the way uh, that VR leads to knowledge and skill retention for cognitive and psychomotor surgical skills. And uh, seeing that in action, I think both myself and uh, Nelson Su, who, who's a program director at UCLA Orthopedics, were really just blown away by the transformation that occurred in just about 20 to 30 minutes of sort of first-year medical students who don't even know what a tibia is to, I mean, to us, they look like they were second or third year residents, like they had gone like five to six years in the future. So we we're both kind of just open mouth gaping. It is more effective than we thought it would be. And it's only getting better. Wow, that is really exciting. We're going to have to rewrite the whole training programs, right? If we can accelerate learning that much just on a 20, 30 minute exposure to this sort of technology. And it's not just you know, a U.S. application or a Western medicine sort of application. This, I think this has massive applications in, you know, developing countries. Absolutely. Um, I, I just want to tell you one quick story about that that really kind of made me realize that this is different than technologies that had come before. And I was speaking with a group in India, um, and they were really interested in kind of trying out our technology. And so I was like, well, you know, maybe we can find someone to come out there or we could ship you some hardware and they're like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 just, you can just email it to us. We, we have all the hardware right here. I'm like, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and so I sent them an email with a zip file. And five minutes later, they were training to do this sophisticated procedure. And so it's a completely different way to do training. And it's scalable in a global way. It's, uh, it's going to change everything. I'm really excited about kind of truly democratizing access to uh, modern and advanced surgical techniques. Yeah, I mean, yes, I, the, the mind just uh, starts to explode with different ideas in terms of military applications and uh, relief uh, applications and trying to get some of those uh, frontline people resourced with more knowledge when you necessarily, as you were just saying, you can't necessarily get the people out there, but you need to get the knowledge and the abilities out there to where they need to uh, to actually put it to work. So yeah, great example there. Thanks for sharing that story. Uh, Justin, listen, I, I want to ask you six questions that I ask every guest. Do you have a few more minutes for me? Always, Dan. What's a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you? I think for me that uh, uh, it never ceases to amaze me, sort of the miracle of the human body. Uh, I'm not a very religious person, but there's kind of a, one of my physician heroes is Ambroise Paré, who uh, uh, was a French surgeon who's the first person to treat gunshot wounds without pouring boiling oil into them, which was kind of revolutionary for the time. But he would always say that, you know, about his patients, I bandaged him, but God healed him. And I think, you know, technology and what we're able to do today is so amazing. But really, at the end of the day, we're relying on the intrinsic ability of the human body to mend itself and heal itself. And uh, that is still kind of what we're relying on. And it, it, just, it just continues to fascinate me that we're able to break someone's bone, put it back together, and it, it will heal. What advice do you have for others working to innovate in healthcare? I, I would have two kind of key things. One is be a problem solver, find problems, don't find solutions, practice need pull, not tech push, and really immerse yourself in the problems. And I think things will naturally come out of that. Don't pick a technology and try and apply it to some issue in healthcare. That, that is always ends poorly. And the other one, what I would say is, uh, if someone tells you that you have a bad idea, that's something that's worth looking into. All of our brains work very similarly. And so, Given the same problem, hundreds of people will come up with the same solution. But if someone tells you that an idea is not a good idea, that means that the default response of the human brain is to dismiss this solution. So it could be something that you could have a massive head start if it's truly a great solution. That's a great explanation. I like that. 
What's a book that you recommend to our listeners? There's a book that has inspired me throughout my life. It's called Doctors by Sharon P. Newland, and it tells the story of uh, sort of critical physicians throughout time, their impact on the field of medicine, but also their personal journeys and uh, the demons that they wrestled with to bring the knowledge and science that we currently take for granted to light. For example, uh, Andreas Vesalius was one of the first people to practice human dissections and turn over a thousand years of medical knowledge by questioning sort of the anatomy that was commonly accepted at that time, which was based off animal dissections and really uh, changed everything and paved the way for physicians to actually kind of speak truth to power and, you know, ask questions. Uh, do we really understand things as well as we think we do? What's a piece of tech, whether it's software, an app or device that you use that makes your life a lot easier? I mean, I'm just going to be pretty frank here. I think the Starbucks mobile app has been pretty critical to the success of the company. There's a steady <laughs> flow of caffeine going into Oso VR thanks to that bad boy. I'm surprised I don't hear that answer more often. That's a great app, <laughs> a great solution. If I gave you a check for $5 million for you to invest in health technology today, how would you invest it? Uh, I would probably invest it in physician uh, and provider enabling technologies. Uh, there's a company called Augmetics that I really believe in that's doing uh, using Google Glass for virtual scribes so that uh, you can once again make eye contact with patients and, and don't have to worry as much about documentation. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, physicians in some studies have the highest suicide rate of any profession. For female physicians, it's more than double the normal population rate. Over 400 physicians commit suicide a year. It's a major issue. I think a big part of this is burnout and the sheer workload and the difficulty of our day-to-day -day lives. And I really worry about my colleagues and their mental health well-being. And any technology that can make their life easier and address this critical issue, I would support with uh, any amount of money. I am aware of that issue and some of those statistics. They are scary, and I think burnout is a major issue, and we actually have some podcasts coming up where we're going to talk about some of those things and some of the tools and resources to try to alleviate some of that. So, yeah, great solution and uh, a great answer. Lastly, we make a contribution to a charity in appreciation of your time on the show. What charity have you selected, and can you tell me a little bit about what they do? There's an organization called Sign Fracture Care which makes very low-cost implants that are provided to surgeons around the world for free or at very, very low cost so that you know patients can get at least the bare minimum of care so that they're not permanently disabled or disfigured. Um, it's an incredible organization. Uh, they do a lot of work in Ethiopia where we sent a lot of our residents when I was at UCLA. It's a really cool organization, uh, the kind of unique angle and what they do. And I think it's really important because we all have bones and uh, they break. Excellent. I will include a link to that charity. It's Sign Fracture Care. I've not heard of them before, but I appreciate you nominating them. We'll make a gift in your name, and we'll, we encourage listeners to go online and find their link and make donations as well. Justin, listen, I really appreciate you coming on and spending time with me and sharing your story with the listeners and giving us some perspective of this massive problem about surgical training and the opportunities that VR offers to try to accelerate learning and improve learning and ultimately patient outcomes and treatment. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners before I let you go? No, I just I just want to thank you for having us on the show. I think the work you're doing and, uh, you know, there's a lot of noise in digital health and you just cut right through it like butter. So thank you for your work, Dan. There you have it. That was Dr. Justin Barad, founder and CEO of VR. Be sure to visit the show notes and check out the videos by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 45. I'm sure you're going to be impressed. We have more great guests coming up. We have so many guests. I can hardly wait. So many people are working on such interesting things in healthcare, and I really appreciate you getting in touch to be on the program. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to check out Medible.com. Many thanks to them for supporting the show. 
In fact, some of their leadership is coming across to the UK next week. So drop me a line at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com if you'd like to be put in touch and maybe meet them while they're in town. In the meantime, jump on their website, sign up for a demo of Axon. You'll be surprised at how fast you can create a clinical trial app. Again, thank you, Medible. We appreciate your support in making these episodes possible. Keep your comments, questions, and suggestions coming, folks. Ping me on Twitter at HealthTechDan and follow the show at DHealth Today. If you want to get in touch with me directly to talk about the show or about becoming a partner, email me at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com. I look forward to hearing from you and exploring how we can use this platform to help you grow and succeed. Now that's all for me for now. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, keep on innovating.